Hi, Jen. Welcome back to Canada, Tisha. Yay! I'm back. I say yay because it's nice to be home, but I super didn't want to leave. I want to know, like, what was it like for your girls getting on an airplane? Super excited. I mean, we got there really early, so they were tired. I mean, like the actual on the getting flight. on the plane, like the takeoff, all of that. Was there excitement or were they just very, just like nonplussed about the whole thing? No, they were excited. But when we, because uh, this was their first right. ever flight. And, um, but we boarded the plane here in Canada to go. And then there was a delay, but we were already on the airplane. Oh. So like my youngest was sleeping because we'd gotten early. up yeah. so early. So she fell asleep like before we took off, but I woke her up for takeoff and yeah, they loved it. Um, and it was a bit of a bumpy ride. I've definitely had smoother flights, but they no. don't know the difference. So even though we had turbulence, we're like, it's okay. This is normal. This is what happens. But like, it was definitely bumpier than most flights I'd taken, but the ride home was really smooth. And yeah, we all had a fantastic time. And I think the kids want to move to Mexico now. So there's that. And yeah, that's amazing. So, I, I think like, I just, as I asked you that, I was thinking like, cause both my kids flew probably within their like first six months or so. So they don't, mm-hmm. there was no, like, that was nothing. I think Logan would fall asleep during takeoff and landing. Um, so there wasn't that moment of like, whoa like they still get excited on planes they like to sit by the window like it's still a big deal they're not like over it but I feel like when they're just a little bit older for that first time it's just got to be really cool I am nervous taking off and landing every time but they were too excited to like even notice so I'm holding my littlest one. I'm holding was her she hand like, as Mom. we're taking off as much for myself as I was for her. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know what I mean? But my husband's like, look at that, look at that. And really good at like pointing stuff out. So they didn't really even notice that I was nervous. <laughs> well, and it's, I feel like yeah, everything I'm- feels a little bit different when you're with your kids. You're more in like yeah. high alert anyway. So if that made you nervous yeah. before, I don't know. No, exactly. Exactly. You're we totally went to right. The Boston area and saw my nieces and my sister and her family and all of that. But I was able to take, it was almost exactly 50 hours to myself, which Woo-hoo! to be able to do that and not be at home for any of that time was kind of nice. I went to a super mm-hmm. bougie spa resort where no phones were really supposed to be used in public areas. And did things like floating meditation and restorative yoga and sound baths and all that kind of, I like to call it witchy stuff that I really like, which was great. Mm-hmm. And by myself, there were definitely more boisterous groups there, but the staff is so well-trained that like, I would have my book and not really want to talk. I'd place my order. They would just kind of do a, a pass by, you know, when I was eating to see if I needed anything, but they wouldn't, they don't talk to you unless you need them. And it was just like really nice because I just wanted some peace and quiet. I did some spa stuff and everything. It was really amazing. And then on the complete flip side, drove from like, you know, rural Western Mass to downtown Boston, where I was like walking around where I used to work and went to this event with 200 other beauty counter consultants who, and I, and I haven't done anything like that in three years. 
um, almost exactly, mm-hmm. which is wild because when I would have done something like that was kind of right when the pandemic was starting two years ago. So it was a swing of like things for me and things that felt good. And it kind of reminded yeah. me like it was all self-care though, but it reminded me that we need to have that different things make us feel good at different points in time. Like I needed that like quiet rejuvenation, all of that, like that, you know, 36 hours was super important just as a break from like momming, but then the actually being in a room with 200 other people, can we just first acknowledge how crazy that is? For those of us Mm -hmm. who are in like Toronto and Ontario, we haven't been allowed to do that. (laughs) Um, No, no. Uh, being on a resort for me was, was weird too. Cause there were just so many people and like buffet food and like just yeah yeah (laughs) it's lots of stuff we hadn't actually done before but you're right you need to have we need different things at different times and like we have so many cups that need to be filled so if you invest everything in just you know meditation you might not be achieving the outcome that you really need because you have other cups that you also need filled like socializing with other people fills one cup with meditation fills another. And um, that just reminds me of like Sneha's story of sibling loss. And she was talking about what happened when she only had one coping mechanism, which had to do with exercise and then was injured and couldn't do that. And so we, you know, we do need more than one thing, not just to fill our own cups, but also if one is taken away from us, then we need some other things to rely on that we do for ourselves. I think we underestimate too the value of like getting out of our routines and getting out of our house and not just to like, like you go to your cottage a lot. And I know that's amazing for you, but I have to imagine like being somewhere where you don't have to worry about anything is also pretty amazing too. I mean, no cooking, no dishes, no beds. It was Yeah. Like just even having two (laughs) days of that where I didn't even have to think about a meal because not even for myself, because you know, the, the spa resort was all inclusive. And then I went to the city, I had drinks and I, all I had to do was I've texted a girlfriend and we went out to dinner and she booked a place. Like literally I just had to show up wherever I was going and, <laughs> and, eat, and eat and like, you know, and, you know, and do you get a massage or whatever it was? It was just like done. Yeah. Um, and I think that's important. I think we often get bogged down because obviously that kind of stuff is not inexpensive. But of course. I think if you can swing it, it's better to do that for yourself every once in a while than talk yourself out of it is my, mm-hmm. my take on it. But today's episode. Yeah, sure. yes. She's so She's lovely. So great. I think our listeners are going to love her. She was such a sweetheart and she is going to talk to us today about her life living with chronic pain. And yeah, she was fantastic. And I hope you're going to love the episode. And if you do tell your friends, because we're always trying to build our following and we would love, you know, word of mouth is the best way to do that. So recommend us to your friends, let them know, and be sure to check us out on Patreon as well. It is $4 a month and we will be releasing part two of one of my my story of childhood trauma on there later end this, this week. week the end of this week. week yep it's really inexpensive it helps keep us ad free it helps 
just support the work we're doing and, and offset the costs of producing the show. And then as Tisha said, share and write us a review. We read the reviews, guys. I love to read reviews. So leave us a review on Apple. I don't know if you can anywhere else. And enjoy this episode. Hi, welcome back to the Now What Pod. I'm Jen. And I'm Tisha. Thank you for joining us and listening. Today, we are going to be talking to Afshin, who's joining us from Sacramento, California. And she is going to talk to us about her experiences living with chronic pain. And she's also going to talk to us about her service dog, Sammy, which I love it so much. So thank you. Welcome, Afshin. How are you? Welcome. I'm doing well. Thank you. How are you guys doing? We're pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. So I... I mentioned in the intro that you um, have chronic pain, but could you tell us a little bit more specifically about that? Yeah. So I have chronic pain. I've had chronic pain for the last um, like 14, 15 years. I first started when I was 13 and it ended up being rheumatoid arthritis and fibromyalgia. And I was diagnosed in 2019 with both of them. So that's kind of how my chronic pain journey started. Um, when I was 13, like I went to the ER and was misdiagnosed as just like a sprained wrist, but it never really um, felt right. So I just kind of ignored it. Um, I was also uninsured at the time. So that had a huge role in me not, you know, being able to seek out more care and other professional opinions. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, but that's kind of how it all started. So it took that long to get a diagnosis. Yeah. Um, I started actively searching for a diagnosis in 2013 when I got health insurance. And when I started going to school and having a job, that really helped kind of open some doors. But yeah, it took even from there, it took about six years to get that diagnosis because it's hard for like doctors to see chronic pain um, when it doesn't appear in like labs or in my x-rays, it just wasn't bad enough. So they couldn't see the proof and that's kind of what they're looking for. So that was really frustrating, but yeah, it took that long. Wow. That's, that would be really frustrating because they can't see it, but you're experiencing it. Yeah, exactly. And that's like, they only read about it in textbooks and people with chronic pain, we live it every day. And it makes it, it's such a hard thing to explain to somebody and get them to see how you see it every day. Did you feel like you're being, it sounds like, it almost sounds like you're being gaslit. Yeah, all the time. I was talking to a friend earlier and she was afraid of her doctor's appointment coming up and got me thinking I've always been afraid of doctor's appointments because I feel like I'm going to go in there and they're going to tell me I'm making it all up even though clearly now my labs and my x-rays show the damage from rheumatoid arthritis but it's just difficult still going in and reliving that trauma that ends up coming up because you've gone through it so many times Mm -hmm. and yeah I got referred to psych more than I got referred to rheumatologists and I think that really says something about the way pain is looked at in our community. Yeah, for sure. So they actually referred you to like a therapist. Yeah, um, several different primary doctors. Even my last primary doctor, I what I had a 
active diagnosis refused to refer me to a rheumatologist because he felt he could manage my illness, but I really needed a rheumatologist. So it's a lot about, you know, basically your doctor shopping and that's looked upon as such a negative thing, but you have to find someone that that's going to listen to you basically. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking like your young woman, and I think as a young person, for one, and as a woman, for two, you're not listened to. No. Like, I don't know. I don't know for sure, but, you know, especially by a male doctor, but just, you know, you're, you're a young girl. You said this started, you were 13 years old mm-hmm. and you're complaining about pain. They're probably like, oh, you're 13, you're young, you're healthy. It's in your head. Growing pains. It's in your head. That's a good one. Yes. Did anyone ever suggest it was growing pains? Oh yeah. Every physician I went to <laughs> said it was growing pains. I was physically so confused because I had this giant bump on my wrist, which was, I don't know, maybe it's my bone or maybe it was just so swollen that it was pushing my bone out because it still happens and we still haven't figured it out. So there's still, even after diagnosis, there's still all this uncertainty that comes about. Yeah. Um, but yeah, even at 29 or huh, not 29 yet, <laughs> I'm just like, I'm ready to get to that 30 mark. Um, even at 27, don't rush I feel, it. I've always um, done that, like rushed through. So I'm trying, I'm r- learning how to just like be present in the moment. And I feel like, I don't know, I feel like having a chronic illness really makes me like rush to my future because I want to know what it's going to be like. I want to know if I'm going to be better than what I'm at right now, or I don't want to, I want to know if my meds are working. So yeah. I guess there's always kind of a rush with me, but. Well, that, I mean, that makes sense, especially because it feels like, because you waited so long to be taken seriously, you would want to rush through that. Yeah. Exactly. So like for that to kind of just, I don't know, take its toll on your way of thinking makes sense. Yeah, it really definitely changes the way you look at things and how you perceive the world around you. I used to be way different Um, when I was going through college and basically masking the pain. Mm -hmm. I was a completely different person than I am now. I used to be like way, way reckless and just not making the best decisions as you know, we all do. And I feel like chronic illness almost, I don't know, gave me a reason to ground myself, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. It made me become more mature and take my life more seriously than I was at that time mm-hmm. and be more intentional, I think. So definitely um, been some like a lot of growth out of it. But generally speaking, like chronic pain isn't something that's like a character building factor. I definitely wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like everybody we talk to is kind of like, they've learned from what they've gone through, but they still would rather it not have been something they had to go through and they don't wish it on anybody else. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. No matter like how much you might like appreciate some learning that you got out of it or where you like who you are currently, like you still generally don't want to have dealt with what you dealt with. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's definitely been some like really big challenges that have come up, like, especially like losing relationships for me has been a huge thing. Just people walking away because it gets too hard. That's been really difficult for me to personally handle. But other than that, I feel like 
you just kind of get better at handling what your body throws at you in a way when you're dealing with chronic pain. Mm-hmm. You kind of get it sucks, but you get used to it and you do. So you were all through high school experiencing pain. Was it daily? So I, man, I have blocked out a lot of my high school years <laughs> with, with their coming up with the reunion and everyone's excited to go. I'm just like, mm, maybe not. <laughs> I'll stay home. But yeah, I, I think it was more, it came in waves. It was a lot triggered with stress. I was, I, I found out I was undocumented when I was in high school. So I think a huge part of my flares became just this constant being in like a flight or fight mode, just always being ready to like, oh my gosh, what if someone finds out? So having that, I think definitely made me more susceptible to the flares. I remember like my ankle becoming a problem in sophomore year, right after I was really sick for like three weeks. And after that, my ankle started hurting and I didn't at the time, now looking back, I can see that, yes, an illness triggered a flare for me. But Mm -hmm. at that time, I just thought, you know, oh, I rolled my ankle because I was running because you don't think about chronic pain when you're 14 years old. You know, you don't think like, oh, this is related to my hand. I should tell someone. But I did. I didn't even think about telling anybody about my ankle. I used crutches for like an hour, maybe. But it was just so hard on my wrists. So I couldn't use the crutches because Mm -hmm. it was putting too much pressure on my wrists. Mm -hmm. So I had, I I literally had a friend carry me around because I just couldn't walk. Um, And that was sophomore year. So, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't think, I mean, you would never think the word arthritis as a 14 year old girl. No, everyone in my family was relatively like healthy. So I never thought it would even be like a piece of what's going on with me. Mm-hmm. What were your parents thinking like in those years leading up to you actually getting a diagnosis? This is really hard because I hid my, my pain for a very long time. Mm-hmm. I didn't tell my family I was in any pain until like 2015 when I finally told them like, Hey, this wrist thing is like a permanent thing. I don't think it's going away. Um, I used to do henna when I was younger, when I first moved to America, I used to do henna at my mosque. But after a few years, I started saying no to people because it was just too painful. And that my mom knew about that and my dad knew about it, but they didn't know the extent of how much it was hurting because I never really opened up to them. Mm-hmm. A part of me didn't want them to worry. And a part of me was also scared that, oh my gosh, what if I did something to mess up my body? And now my parents are going to have to figure out how to fix it. Mm-hmm. So I honestly just, I didn't tell them. And then when I moved out to go to school, I felt like I had to deal with it on my own. Like, I didn't want to burden anybody with Mm -hmm. what I was going through. So, yeah, so I hit it for a long time. But in the three years that they knew how bad the pain was, they were really worried. I mean, they still are. They really adapted to everything that I asked of them. Like I went gluten free for a while and they changed everything to make it so they could feed me gluten-free foods. And my dad still, whenever he goes to the store and sees gluten-free items that are new, he'll pick them all up, like, and he'll bring them all home. 
<laughs> yeah, the other day he got some um, like gin tonics, gin and tonics that he saw. And he was like, oh my gosh, they're gluten-free. She would love these. So I have all this alcohol in my fridge. <laughs> Do you still eat gluten-free? Um, so now I... I try really hard not to eat gluten, but I think the stress of keeping gluten out of my diet was causing more flares for me. So it just works out better this way. Yeah. Right. That I feel like, yeah, for a long time before I got a diagnosis, I went completely gluten and dairy free for a while that helped keep my symptoms at bay. But now it doesn't really impact me as much as it used to, because I'm on medications that are kind of taking some of that impact. So my body, I can do a lot of the usual things that people are able to do, like, you know, eating bread, which I don't eat all the time, but I do. I do like eating bread. Sometimes it makes me happy. French bread, warm French bread. There's really nothing butter on it. I mean, gluten and dairy, I think need to be my my primary food groups. If, if I uh, wasn't worried about health in any way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And you want to go out and eat at restaurants. I imagine see your friends, like that's a lot of what people do. And then that extra stress of trying to eat gluten and dairy free. Like I could see how that could be more stressful and cause that stress causing more damage than actually just Mm -hmm. eating it sometimes. Yeah. And the eating it sometimes has been working really well for me because I don't end up feeling guilty after. And that's a huge, huge piece of my fibromyalgia is when I'm feeling stressed or guilty, it will flare and then it will trigger my RA flare. So it, when so you're dealing with the other. Yeah. And, and sometimes vice versa, because, um, that's just what my body likes to do. Um, and it's kind of like a being in a cycle. And right now I'm in the good part of the cycle where things are um, flowing pretty good and I can eat pretty, pretty well. Generally, um, I don't have any big major issues going on um, with food. So that's been really nice and helpful. But that changes all the time, too. And that's mm-hmm. the thing about having chronic illness. You never know what's going to happen. So, right. It, it's so important to just take it as it comes. It's interesting that you said that like feeling guilty would trigger a flare up. I've never heard uh, like any, I've never heard, I've just never heard that before. Like you hear of like certain, you know, concrete things um, and, and stress, everybody knows stress will, will trigger all kinds of things in our body, but guilt, that's really interesting. And gotta be impossible to manage because there are just times in life that that's something that we really feel. Yeah. There's no way of getting around guilt. It kind of, it's just, it's always lingering. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like guilt and shame are forms of stress too, right? Yeah. Like it, they are yeah. kind of all connected. You said that you're in a good cycle right now. Mm-hmm. Could you explain what it looks like when you're not having a good day or a good week or whatever? So usually when I'm in a flare, let's say um, there's different ranges of flare for me personally. I go like very like if I were to range it, like it goes from one to five for me. 
five is a really bad flare day where I won't be able to get out of bed. Um, my joints look very swollen and they're usually really hot and stiff. So I'm not really able to move. I sleep with my fists closed. I don't know why I do that, but I still do it. And sometimes when I wake up, I'm not able to open them up all the way. So Mm -hmm. so that's what a really bad flare day would look like. But usually when I wake up, I have some sort of stiffness, usually in my toes, my big toes, and sometimes in my wrists and my fingers. But every day I wake up with toe pain for sure. And that's, that hasn't changed. And honestly, it hasn't changed in years. I don't remember. Does it kind of pass like as you are getting up and moving or? on It all depends on what I'm doing. A lot of the times right now I'm doing a lot of trainings for work. So it's a lot of sitting down in one place. So it, it definitely doesn't get better, you know, because I'm just sitting on it. But yes, if I'm getting around and moving, I like to put my toes in ice water that really helps get that circulation going and numb that pain feeling. It really, really helps me. Even just some cold water on my hands is like fantastic. I don't, I don't do dishes anymore unless I'm using cold water because the hot water triggers, (laughs) triggers pain for me. Mm -hmm. So it's just easier doing it with cold water. And I actually learned that working in senior living years ago, I used to work with one of the medical assistants there who had some different form of arthritis and I think she had osteoarthritis and she shared with me that she usually uses cold water to do the dishes and I haven't went back since so yeah my mother has fibromyalgia Mm. and temperature is like a big thing for her like she feels I don't know she feels the temperature differently than I do yeah and she's like, it hurts. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that. Yeah, you can. You were saying before we like started recording about how the weather in Sacramento was kind of cooling off again and that you were looking forward to that. Yeah, I know it sounds really strange, but I definitely prefer cooler weather. Like, like um, I think you said your mother-in-law, right? My mother. Oh, your mother. Okay. Um, yeah, same for me. I have a really hard time controlling temperature and feeling temperature is completely different. It can be 80 degrees outside and I'll be cold, but it'll be like a painful type of cold where it just doesn't feel the same. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to explain that to somebody who, who's just like, let's go enjoy the warm weather outside. And you're like, no, I want to stay inside. It doesn't feel good. Right. Yeah. My mom's always like, I don't know, more blankets and more coats and she thinks it's, I don't know. She feels it's cold. Yeah. And the rest of us are comfortable. Yeah. That's me. I always, I have a heated blanket in the car. I have a heated blanket on my bed right now that I'm using. It'll be, I have my heater going when it's, when it's 90 degrees outside. There's really no explanation for why your body does that, but sometimes your body just really wants weird things heat when it's heat outside and like heat when it's cold outside. It's just really strange what my body wants now. (laughs) I just have to kind of roll with it. Well, I think probably in learning to roll with it because it, it impacts so much of how you feel. Yeah, it does. And something I started doing that gives me some sort of control is bullet journaling. 
that lately has been really helpful. I don't always finish filling it out. I fall off usually in about the first couple weeks of the month, but at least it gives me some sort of like idea of what's going on with my body and how I am able to kind of navigate what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, and it's kind of nice. I, I track in there, like when I take my meds, when I shower, when I take Sammy to work, because that adds another like eight steps to my morning routine. So <laughs> it's always, it's always a good time taking her with me, but uh, definitely a lot more work when it comes to like taking her with me for a whole day. Um, so what does Sammy help you with? <clears throat> So Sammy helps me with um, some different types of medical things. So one of the things she helps me the most with right now is itching and scratching. I take enbrel injections and they leave a, it's an otter injector. So it leaves a pretty gnarly rash on my thighs where I do the injection and I just pick at it a lot. And I've also had some like self-harm in the past where like I scratch or bite myself. So Sammy interrupts those moments where I'm doing those things. Mm-hmm. Um, she's outside or she would have got me trying to like scratch myself. <laughs> and she also does a lot of mobility work now that she's old enough and her plates, growth plates have closed. So she's learning how to do what a walker would be doing essentially. Um, I work with kids and they're kids as little as four years old and teenagers like 19 to 21 year olds as well. So I kind of work with people that would, I feel like treat me differently if I had a walker, you know, so having a service dog who can work as my walker would be a lot easier for me to um, navigate just going to different schools because I have to go to schools all the time. I have to go to court. It's just too many variables when I'm trying to get a walker through a security checkpoint at a courthouse. So yeah, absolutely. Oh, sorry. Background. I also work as a mental health clinician. So sometimes I have to go to court to like support my kids, you know, like where they're at and just kind of give an update to the court if they're like dependents of the court or ward of their court or they're like on probation or something. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Just going with the service dog thing. I was also thinking that for some children that might make you seem more approachable. Oh yeah. I know there are people who are afraid of dogs, but a lot of children kind of want to see dogs, pet dogs, like where a walker, it's like a big metal black thing. Mm-hmm. It's probably less, probably would make you less approachable. And obviously in yeah. your profession, you want them to feel comfortable with you. Yeah, I agree. And taking it in and out of the car is also a big part. I totally didn't think about it until just now. Um, Putting it in the car and out of the car is such a hassle when you have to fold the whole thing. And no matter how easy it is, you know, when, when you have, when you're running late, because I'm always running late. (laughs) (laughs) I try so hard not to be late, but I, it is what it is. And I've accepted it. It's just a fact of my life. And um, when I'm in a rush, I don't have time to take my walker out of the car. And, you know, insurance doesn't cover a walker. Really? At least not to me because I'm not sick enough. They're very quick to give it if like, let's say I were to have a surgery, they would provide me with like a 
regular walker, but it wouldn't be something that I could like invest in. I would have to do it on my own, which I mean, they're not too expensive now, but still $150 is kind of a lot to shell out when you're thinking about how much inconvenience is also going to cause you in the long run. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, and Sammy can get herself in and out of the car. You just have to open the yeah. door. <laughs> yeah. It's so much easier, honestly. Yeah, it definitely, it was a challenge getting her approved through my work. They were less than excited, which I totally understand. My Part of my job involves going to people's homes. So right. that, that obviously I understand is a huge risk for them. So um, that part was really kind of um, difficult to get through. But now that she's approved, you know, she has a little spot in our little cubicle. And I put a little sign on the door that says service dog is working in here. So no one's like surprised just mm-hmm. if a dog pokes their head out of my cubicle, like she's supposed right. to be there. Um, <laughs> right. And uh, just random. She must be really great to have when you have those really bad days, those, you know, five days where you can't get out of bed and and like just to even like for the companionship, I would imagine. Yeah. And it's great. I love my animals. They've been such a huge part of my health plan. Not only do they provide me with companionship, but it's like it gives you purpose sometimes mm-hmm. when you really just don't want to wake up and get out of bed like I, I need to do that so she can you know have her meal and have a chance to go to potty and play so it definitely gets me out of bed and I don't know if I honestly would sometimes if I didn't have to with her so mm-hmm. definitely appreciate her being there and yeah she helps me get out of bed too that's one of her tasks is She'll place herself right in front of me so I can push off of her instead of pushing off of like a soft bed that where my wrists could get hurt even more. Right, right. She can give you that like resistance that you need. Yeah. It's interesting because those are things that like that is something I never would have thought of as being difficult for you. Yeah. Or that a dog would be what could help with. Yeah. And you probably have a million of those examples as well that like people don't realize how difficult life is when you are living with chronic pain. Do you find that it's difficult for those around you to relate or to understand what you're experiencing? I think so. I think my loved ones really try. I can see that they really try to understand where I'm coming from, but you don't know until you know what it's like every day yeah sorry didn't think that was gonna hit me so much but yeah no I've met so many amazing people on social media who do get it who do live in chronic pain and know exactly what it's like to have these feelings and not be like validated by people around you you Mm -hmm. know people will be there for you until you're like no I don't want to go gluten-free or people will try to help you until you're like, no, I kind of want to keep taking these medications. Like, I don't want to try natural anymore. You know, like those things really have an impact on the way people relate to you and people come up to you. A lot of people want to provide you with solutions, but a lot of people who have chronic pain just want someone to listen Mm -hmm. and want to be heard because we, I have a whole medical team. I promise they've got me. They've told me to be gluten-free. They told me about turmeric. Like they told me everything. It's so interesting. Well, two things. People's need to like 
fix, fix. a situation. There's mm-hmm. that. And then I guess in conjunction with that, the it's hard for me to even see them as well-meaning because maybe it's just because we have these conversations all the time. But like, is it really well-meaning when you're like, oh, drink this tea and you're going to be okay? You don't know. And you don't, it's just, it's very dismissive to what your actual lived experience is. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense, right? Because it kind of forces you to question like your view of mortality in general, like, oh, if you're not going to be okay, like that could happen to me. And like, I have to, I have to know that it would be okay if it were to happen to me. And Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's where we're coming from and makes total sense that we want to fix things for other people. So if it happens to us, we can, yeah. we can be like, it's fixable. Yeah. It's satisfying our own need to be comfortable. Or like you said, like, we don't want to think about, or we want to think that we'd be able to solve this if this happened to us. And so we can solve your problems for you. Um, even though, as you said, you have an entire medical team behind you who is working, then you still might get I imagine you probably get it all the time. All the people are like, oh, I heard that turmeric's really great for inflammation. <laughs> and this essential yes. oil will fix whatever oh, hurts. I totally have drank that Kool-Aid. <laughs> well, it I, makes sense. It to, was good. It makes sense to have drank it and done all those things when nobody was believing you and nobody was listening to you. So yeah. like, you know, you, you do all you have, but if you've done it already and someone really has no clue what you're going through, either just listen or like, don't be here. <laughs> yeah. You can write it in your notes in your iPhone and just save it for like a future date. I think that's such a great, that's something my therapist told me is um, if you want to send something snarky to somebody, just put it in your notes pad and reevaluate in an hour and see if you still want to do it. And yeah. I feel like if people did that more, we would have a lot less drama and like a lot less hurt people on social media because we're, we're in this community where we're trying to, you know, um, get validation because so many of us don't get that from our physicians. So it mm-hmm. makes it a lot harder to kind of um, be in a world where everyone's like in a competition, basically. I had cervical cancer and I occasionally write about that and I will frequently get just unsolicited messages from people claiming to have the cure which (laughs) is always something like really hokey and scammy like I have to buy some juice or something and it actually really pisses me off yeah it's so frustrating it's frustrating because I didn't ask for your cure for one, but I also feel like these people are like preying upon people who are desperate for answers and taking advantage of a situation and promising things that they can't actually provide. Yes, I 100% agree. And especially right now, like there's there's this need to beat or heal your chronic illness and your chronic pain. And we're not really being taught to how to live with it and how to cope with what comes with it. We're taught to how to like beat it and how to be our bodies, which isn't possible. 
it's not always possible for people and it's not always the goal for some people either right like like just like we go to therapy and have different goals we also have different physical goals right like my goal personally is to be able to get to a point where i can do powerlifting again but my friends who have same chronic illnesses as me they they have a completely different goal like they just want to be able to shower and not feel like they have to rest for 2 hours after right so yeah. i think it's really important to think about that when we're when we're sending each other these like messages and like yeah and like really looking out for one another when when you see someone preying upon somebody i think that's really really important you know like put, i don't know like putting that out out there and being like hey i feel like this content might be triggering for you so if you see this you know you can also protect yourself and i've had to do that mm-hmm. recently someone i looked up to in the community has you know recently you know, publish her works that she feels is the way to go for like healing chronic illnesses and stuff. And that's just not something I vibe with. So instead of commenting and being negative, like I just took myself out of the feed. Right. And I posted on my page and I was just like, Hey, this is something that triggered me. If it also triggers you, like, please like, let me know, like, I'm here for you. And that's all you can really do for one another. It's like, we get triggered by our physicians enough. Like we don't need it from within our community too, you know? Yeah. And I think it's interesting kind of to hear you talk about that. The end goal is maybe not a cure. The Mm -hmm. end goal for you, like your goal may not be to never experience pain again, as beautiful as that would be. I'm sure, but maybe your goal is being pain-free enough that you can do those things. Yeah. It would seem anyway, that if somebody is living with chronic pain, the idea that you could potentially be pain-free in perpetuity is like so unrealistic. Yeah. Like, like you said, how you want to power lift and someone else might want to just shower without it, like taking them out for two hours. Like once you've like lived lived and experienced something that's so trying and debilitating and hard I would imagine you you need some goals that are that feel more realistic yeah exactly and I feel like that's what a lot of the shift at least in mental health at least where I'm studying the the shift is to really make goals that are attainable for people so we can focus on the progress and successes of our clients instead of trying to make goals like oh this person will not eat gluten ever again oh how about you just start out with maybe not eating gluten like for every meal right that's a lot more attainable than just Mm -hmm. cutting it out completely because that's a lot of our, that's main food groups for most of our, most <laughs> of our friends and families. Like it's yeah. hard to, you know, go to a barbecue and not eat the rolls. Like everybody wants rolls and the gluten-free ones. My, my, my sister-in-law, bless her heart. She tried, they tasted good the first time, but the second time around, man, I felt so bad. It was so much work for her. And I don't want her them? to have to go. She made them. And <laughs> She's oh. such a sweetheart, but yeah, um, it's, it's funny how like you just kind of learn to live with it. And I think that's what my focus is anyway, with people that I'm sharing my illness with, it's just 
living with it Mm -hmm. and you can't live well every single day but the most important part for me is to find the days where I can live well like Mm -hmm. today I'm not going to lie my camera was off in my meeting and I literally laid in bed all day so while I was working (laughs) (laughs) but you worked so I did I worked I attended my trainings and thankfully I was able to participate even without video which I really appreciate zoom for but yeah just figuring out how it works for you like you don't have to worry about like being well you just have to be worried about being well enough to do the things that you want to do and I think Mm -hmm. that should be the focus of treatment for a lot of people not everyone because everyone has their own thing but I feel like a lot of the focus is on healing then you're not really you're just chasing this unicorn basically well yeah I mean for a lot of things it's essentially not possible Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean you can't still live a full and productive and satisfying life yeah exactly I also like this bit that you've kind of touched upon a couple times just in I think the phrase you used was roll with it like that idea of having to be flexible Mm -hmm. and I guess like living with rheumatoid arthritis and fibromyalgia, you probably don't have that much of a choice. Yeah, no, there's definitely not a whole lot of choice in what I'm going to experience. Like even making plans to go hiking for the weekend, it's not really something that I can do. It has to be in the moment. Like, hey, I feel good enough to go hiking. Let's go. And it's like six o'clock in the morning and my partner's like, but I just want sleep. And I'm like, well, if we don't leave now, I'm going to be out of energy. (laughs) Yeah. And then we'll be stuck at home all day because it'll be too late. Um, So yeah, you just, you have to get this sort of flexibility in you. And I am, I am not a flexible person. I I hate change. (laughs) I can't stand not knowing what to do. When I was younger, I had my entire life planned out. Hasn't gone according to plan at all, but <laughs> I think it's all, all for the best. <laughs> I mean, I think that's life in general. Yeah, things oh, yeah. rarely go exactly according to plan. You mentioned earlier that it has impacted your relationships. Were you referring to friendships or romantic relationships or both familiar relationships yeah I think all of them actually I think my illness has brought me closer to my family in a way because they finally understand why I was just always irritable always angry and Mm -hmm. just always wanted to be alone and it was because I was in pain and I didn't know how to cope with it I didn't know how to talk about it I didn't want to talk about it so that's funny. It kind of ties in with relationships, like romantic relationships as well. When I was hiding all of my pain, I was dating someone and they actually told my family how bad my health was. So I wasn't the one who even told my family that like, Hey, I have like this extent of health problems going on. It was someone else. Um, and it was because it had become too much for them to handle on their own. And looking back, like that's, that's something that I shouldn't have done, you know, like I should have made sure that I wasn't just like overloading this person with all of this stuff Mm -hmm. that was going on with me. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. So I've been in relationships that haven't worked out because it was too much for them, like dealing with the pain and the uncertainty of my future. That's something not everyone can handle, but then I've also found someone who is teaching me how to roll with it. And it's okay to, you know, like, is that Sammy barking? 
That's actually my parents' dog. Or okay, yeah, his <laughs> name is Teddy. He's a little small miniature Westie. He's a little terror. Oh, I love Westie. <laughs> Sorry, I, I totally interrupted you there, but I was like, what is that dog barking? <laughs> oh no, Sammy's. I wonder what she's doing. I think she's still outside, but. I, I forgot what I was saying, but yeah. So you um, were talking about how your, I guess your current partner is teaching you how to roll with it. Yeah. And um, it's something that I had to learn very early on in our relationship because this was the first time where I was like, hey, here's all of my problems. Like, this is what I deal with on a daily basis. So if you can't handle it, just like, tell me now. And then you don't have to worry about it. But I don't know. I guess it didn't really scare him off at all. So <laughs> <laughs> a year later, we're, we're still here. And um, it's kind of nice. He um, he cheers me on when I have to do my injections. I still remember like freaking out and crying for like three hours before doing my first one all by myself. Um, and then now I go live on Sundays to do injections with a bunch of people on Instagram. He's always there, like watching the entire time and cheering me on, which mm-hmm. is really supportive. Yeah. And doesn't like how much time I spend on my phone, but he's <laughs> definitely there to support what he can be. So just, you know, in terms of maybe other people who are listening and wanting to support those who have chronic illness what are some things that they could do or that people have done for you that you found actually helpful something that I've found helpful is friends sending in check-in messages just like hey I am wondering if you're doing okay um following my feed on social media like I'm someone who talks about my chronic illness a lot So if my friends see something that I've posted, they'll message me, but maybe your friend doesn't do that. So what you could do is ask them how they can kind of see that you need help, even when you're not telling them. So for example, if your friend is someone who texts you like every single day and they haven't texted you in a couple of days, it would be a good time for you to check in like, Hey, I'm just wondering if you're okay. And Mm -hmm. sometimes it's okay if they answer, no, I'm not okay. You don't have to fix it. And a lot of times we're not looking for a fix because it's impossible, right? It's like when you go to your friend for relationship advice, you can't make them do something in their relationship. They have to come to that on their own. And that's the same thing with chronic illness. You can't make someone try medications. You can't make someone try, you know, something that you read online and You can also ask like, hey, I feel like I may know something that might be helpful. Do you have the space to hear about it? Mm -hmm. I think that's a good idea to ask if they're they're available to talk about it. And if they're not, then, you know, respect that choice. I think that's a really good way to offer your support. It's easy to say like, hey, I'm here for you. But it's I think it's more meaningful for me when someone's like, hey, I noticed that this is what's going on. If you have the space for it this is when I'm free, like giving time even would be really helpful. So maybe they don't have to feel in pressure of the moment, like, oh, maybe I should talk to them because then if I don't, then they'll think I don't want to reach out. And yeah, that leads to a whole different cycle. Right. Yeah. I kind of like that, you know, it's one thing to send someone a message and say, Hey, I'm here. If you need anything, 
it's a different thing to be more specific and sort of say, hey, I'm here. I'm available at this time if you want to talk. Well, it's like taking the responsibility off of you and putting it back into the person who is struggling with whatever it is they're struggling Mm -hmm. with, right? It's our way of like washing our hands of it when that's not what somebody might need. Yeah. And for me personally, a lot of my friends, what they do is they also don't pressure me to talk about my illness. Um, We don't always talk about it. Mm -hmm. Um, Even with people that I have chronic illnesses that are friends with chronic illness, we don't always just talk about our illnesses. I swear we have hobbies. Yeah, we we have have a whole life. We have a whole life. You're so much more than that. Um, so yeah, definitely, you know, like keep inviting your friends to things, even if they don't always come, they still want to be invited. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of what else. Yeah. I had, a, I had a couple of friends that stopped inviting me to events because like, I didn't go a bunch of times because like I was unwell, but I had to, I had to miss a friend's wedding um, a couple weekends ago because I'm immunocompromised and I had a possible exposure to COVID. So I had to stay home because I didn't want to, you know, possibly mm-hmm. expose somebody else. So, you know, like keep inviting friends. Like she totally understood and they understand that, you know, like, of course you don't have an immune system. I understand that you would want to protect yourself and other people. So I think important part is that, just just being there and like validating that that pain is real and it's not going to change for some people yeah and I guess you know when you're when you're canceling it's not personal right like I could see people taking it personally in terms of like oh you know I've invited her three times and she never shows up or she's canceled all the time Mm -hmm. and it's really it's really not about them right it's really about where you are in terms of your health I also want to say that I love, I mean, you are here talking to us about your chronic illness and it can be easy to see you as like, you're the girl with chronic illness and you post about it on social media. You post about it like on TikTok and Instagram or whatever. But I love that you mentioned the fact that you are so much more than that and that you want to get together with your friends and talk about things, talk about other things. Yeah. Right. Like boys. And, and clothes. Yeah. TV. Oh, yes. We love yeah. talking about Netflix. <laughs> I mean, who doesn't? <laughs> so do we. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I, I mean, there's definitely this normalcy that builds up once you've, once you've been living with it for a while, like you mm-hmm. go back to like a routine and you find a new normal. And I think, what you really find is like people that do understand you, they, they stick around. Like you just, I don't talk to my friend for like months. And at the end of the day, we pick up right where we left off. And I mean, that's what happens when you have babies and, and school and work, Absolutely. You, you get lost Life. in your own lives. Yeah. And, um, and those yeah, are the best and, friendships, right? Totally. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Don't tell my other friends that. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today, Afshin. This has been a really yeah. great conversation and yeah. um, you appear to be rocking it even when you feel like you don't. So, Oh, thank you. Appreciate that. 
Thanks for listening to Now What? If you've enjoyed this episode, leave us a review. Your ratings and reviews help more people like you find our podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and share this episode with someone you think would love it. Until next time, remember, your hard times are the chance to write another chapter.